It's a real uh, treat today to have Bill Hurd back with us to preach. Uh, Bill, years ago, went out from this church uh, to Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And then uh, he and his wife, Sydney, came and served on our staff for uh, several years. Uh, a number of you were in the ministry here when he, in the youth ministry when he led that. Uh, and then he had a heart. He and Sydney wanted to plant a church, and they moved to Lake Norman, North Carolina, and not only established a church, a very healthy church, but they served there 14 years. Then a stint in South America, and for the past three years, has been the pastor at Grace Presbyterian Church in uh, Starkville, Mississippi. Elliot, control yourself now for any other uh, state fans uh, that are here. Uh, I used to say this, and I was reminded this morning. Of all of us that I think have served on our staff, Bill is the most natural preacher. And when I heard you, it all came back to me when I heard you this morning. We welcome you to the pulpit. Good morning to you all. It is so sweet to be back here. And I do want to give a word of thanks. I want to thank you as a church and Chip as pastor here and the Lord for the opportunity to be back. And I also want to thank all of you that when we come into town, you minister to us by loving on us and just giving us such a welcome. And we are grateful for that. I'm sorry that Sydney and the girls are not with me. Uh, there was a number of logistical circumstances. Two of my girls, two of my three girls are returning to college next week, one of them even tomorrow, and so it just made it difficult for them to come this weekend. But Sydney sends her love to all of you and, and wishes that she could be here with you. Well, if you would please this morning uh, turn to the second to last chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, we are going to look at the latter portion of Genesis chapter 49 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 50. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 43, pew Bible page 43, but will be in Genesis 49 verses 29 and following. And while you're turning there, uh, I'd like to ask you a question. And the question is this. What do you think your final and dying wish might be? I have asked Sydney that if I am bedridden and silent, to please feed me fried chicken and pecan pie and to read to me the Bible and John Calvin. I think that sounds pretty good. Uh, but even that's more just in the moment. You and I have long-term desires, long-term aspirations. And if, if you were in your final days or final hours, which do you think might float to the surface as being a paramount desire at that time? Well, today we're going to hear Jacob's final and dying wish. You remember Jacob, one of the patriarchs. His uh, grandfather was Abraham. His father was Isaac. Jacob was given the new name Israel by the Lord, and he became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, today we hear his paramount, his ultimate desire, expressed to his sons in the form of a command, in the form of a charge. As we look at our passage today, the context is about 1859 B.C. Jacob is on his deathbed, surrounded by, surrounded by his 12 sons. You would recognize a lot of the names. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Joseph, Benjamin, and so forth. And importantly, notably, 
The whole family is not in Canaan at this point. They are not in the land that will be called Israel. They are in Egypt. Joseph has been there for decades. The rest of the family has been there 17 years, compelled there because of the earlier great famine. Now, our format today as I preach will be that I'm going to read through a few verses at a time and intersperse that with comments and, and some uh, Uh, insight hopefully into the passage and then after we finish reading the passage I'd like to make a few applications to our lives personally let me lead us in prayer father in heaven we are looking at your word now it is a lamp for our feet a light for our path oh dear lord may the spirit may the holy spirit teach us what he has in mind for his church today the glory of christ the love of the heavenly father and our sure future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'll begin by reading verses 29 through 32. Again, we're beginning in chapter 49 of Genesis. Then he, that is Jacob, commanded them, that is his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. What is Jacob's final and dying wish. It is that his sons would bury him in the family burial plot in Canaan. At that burial plot lay all the patriarchs and all but one of the matriarchs of Israel. Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, lay there. His grandmother Sarah lay there. His father Isaac and his mother Rebekah lay there. And his own wife Leah was buried there. Only his beloved wife Rachel was not buried there. She died while they were traveling. She died in childbirth and is believed to be buried near Bethlehem. But this family burial spot, Abraham, many years before had bought from the Hittites upon the death of his beloved wife, Sarah. He needed a place to bury his wife. And so he petitioned the Hittites to be able to buy the cave to bury her, and one of the Hittites sold him the cave and the adjoining field. And isn't it interesting that the one to whom the whole land of Canaan was promised for his descendants, at this point in redemptive history, he had to buy a piece of it from the Hittites in order to bury his own wife. And Jacob's burning desire, his clear intent, is to be buried in that family plot back in Canaan. And this is not the first time he's made clear this great desire. Two chapters before, in chapter 47, speaking to Joseph, he says these words, Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. And Joseph said, I will do as you say. And we all know Joseph was a man of, of, uh, worthy of his word. His word was good. He said, I'll do as you say. And yet, even then, 
Jacob said to him, Swear to me. And so Joseph swore to him, and Jacob Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And now Jacob repeats that command, that desire to all of his sons, that the burden will not fall just upon Joseph, but upon the brothers corporately, that they will bury him there. Perhaps Jacob was afraid that after these years in Egypt, they'll think, oh, why the bother of taking the body all the way back to Canaan? Or maybe uh, the, the memory of a family burial plot would be very faint in their minds. But by his deathbed order, he asked his sons to do this. We still haven't answered the question yet, though, or at least haven't answered it fully, is why this burning passion, why this great desire to be buried back in Canaan? Joseph was the second highest in command of all of Egypt, and certainly at his fingertips would have been the most wondrous places in Egypt that could be used as a burial place for the father Jacob. Why does Jacob want so intently to be buried in Canaan? My grandmother on my mother's side lived to be 100. And in her later years, she was to decide whether she would be buried in LaGrange, Georgia, alongside of her first husband, who died as a young man, but was the father of their two children, my mother being one of them, or whether she would be buried in Shelman, Georgia, alongside the man she later married that my siblings and my cousins and I all knew as my grandfather. Which was it going to be? First husband, father of the children, LaGrange, Georgia? Or the second husband, the one we all knew as our grandfather, in Shelman, Georgia? And she chose to be buried in Shelman, Georgia. And you know what the reason was, she said? She said because the Shelman Cemetery kept up the lot better. They mowed the grass more frequently. I come from a stock of very sure-minded and practical women. Well, why did Jacob want to be buried in Canaan? It was something far deeper than how the grounds were kept. It was based on God's promise to him and to his family. You see, the Lord had spoken to his grandfather Abraham in Genesis 17, saying, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And the Lord had spoken to Jacob's father Isaac, saying, saying, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands. And the Lord had spoken directly to Jacob also in a dream, saying this, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you were lying. Jacob was lying in Canaan at that time. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. That's from Genesis chapter 28. And the land of Canaan, because it was the land of promise, meant so much to Jacob that when the famine was compelling them to go to Egypt because there was food there, Jacob apparently was distraught at the idea of leaving Canaan such that the Lord spoke to him again directly and said this, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. 
So why does Jacob want to be buried, passionately want to be buried in Canaan? It's because he was trusting that God would fulfill his promise to make him into a great nation that would inherit the land. Now verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Apparently, Jacob had been sitting upright, uh, talking to his sons, but then he brings his feet into the bed, lies back, and apparently without struggle, yields up his spirit, and at 147 years of age, dies. But I absolutely love the phraseology here. It doesn't say he died. It said that he was gathered to his people. He joined his ancestors and or deceased relatives in and through death. Now, verse 1 of chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This is a very moving scene. Many of you have been in this scene before. In one sense, it's common because all people die. We all lose our loved ones. But in another sense, there's nothing common about it because to lose a loved one is a profound event, a profound human experience. And yes, as, Joseph, as Jacob passed away, he was a patriarch. At 147, he was an institution, but he was also a father. He was the father of Joseph and his brothers. And Joseph falls upon him, kisses him, gives him an affectionate farewell, as many of you have done with your parents and loved ones. And probably the rest of Jacob's sons did the same. Now verses 2 through 3. And Joseph commanded his servants the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Jacob and then later Joseph are going to be the only two Hebrews mentioned in Scripture to have received an an Egyptian embalming. Now the embalming process was pretty complex and it was scientific. They would remove the internal organs and put them in a jar. They would treat the body with a dehydrating sodium carbonate. The skin was rubbed and treated with resin and spices. In fact, this is is kind of spooky. The the Hebrew verb for embalming means to make something spicy. (laughs) How do you like Middle Eastern food now? (laughs) The body was then wrapped in layers of linen and placed in a wooden coffin. Now, why the Egyptians did this is clear. The Egyptians believed that death was not the end, but that life could be everlasting, could be everlasting. But they thought that the survival of the body was a necessary requirement for existence beyond death. What they believed is that When a person died, the spirit departed the body, but at some time later, the spirit would come back and revisit the tomb. But the spirit would only be able to enter into the body if it could recognize the body. And so that's why they put a premium on preserving the body so that as close as they could to its living form so that the spirit would recognize its original habitation. Well, the Hebrews in no way agreed with the Egyptians and and their concept of the afterlife, 
But they're having Jacob embalmed for a very practical reason. They're going to carry him to Canaan. They need his body to be preserved for the trip. I remember a a pastor who's now in his 90s, a wonderful pastor in North Carolina, telling me years ago what a service funeral homes performed. I never really thought about it. But here, they're preserving the body so that they can carry him. And it reminds us of how fragile, how temporal our bodies are. The embalming process took 40 days. And interestingly, too, they mourned for Jacob. Egypt mourned for Jacob 70 days, only two days short of the 72 days of mourning that were required for when a pharaoh died. Well, now, verses 4 through 6. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So at the end of this time of mourning, uh, Joseph goes not directly to Pharaoh, but goes to the attendants of Pharaoh to request royal permission to bury his father. And royal permission here was required, was required because Joseph was going to be taking quite an entourage beyond the borders of Egypt. Joseph was right-hand man of Pharaoh, and so it would be important to Pharaoh that Joseph return. And maybe he didn't go directly to Pharaoh because perhaps being unshaven or poorly adorned as part of mourning, or maybe this was just the way of approaching the Pharaoh. Certainly no one, I think, had more rapport or respect by Pharaoh than Joseph did. But Joseph made clear to the Pharaoh that once he had buried the father, he would return to Egypt. And so the king gave his permission. Verses 7 through 9. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. So the corpse of Jacob is being carried by a very large company. There is pomp to this funeral, and it includes three basic groups. The dignitaries and senior officials of Egypt, the family of Joseph, and a military escort. And the military escort was, one, to protect them in Canaan uh, if they should need it, but also maybe, two, to make sure that Joseph and his brothers and families return to Egypt. But, of course, the children and the animals did not go up probably because they were too young, but that would also help ensure that they would actually come back. But boy, we see here the respect that Joseph and maybe even Jacob has uh, have engendered among the Egyptians because of all of these officers. We see the esteem that Joseph was held in Egypt. And uh, in later in, in, in the history of uh, uh, God's redemptive history, when the kings of Judah will pass away, usually it will just say in the Bible, they were buried with their fathers in the city of David. But here we have a much uh, fuller description of the funeral of the patriarch, Jacob. Now verses 10 and 11. 
When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there for a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Uh, it is not known the exact spot uh, where this threshing floor of Atad was, but they were on the border of Canaan. And there they had this ceremony for seven days. And literally it reads, they wailed a great and very strong wailing. And it was so impressive to the Canaanites that lived there, it ended up renaming the spot to Abel Mizraim, meaning the mourning of the Egyptians. Now verses 12 through 14. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So after the the week of mourning there on the border of Canaan, Joseph and his brothers take their father to the area of Hebron and bury their father in that cave where the other patriarchs and matriarchs were buried, fulfilling their father's charge there. And then after performing this duty, they and all the entourage returned to Egypt. Now, let's make three applications from what we've just read. This is the first application. Dear friends, you have eternity in your hearts. Christian or non-Christian, you have eternity in your hearts. The Egyptians were wrong in many facets of their understanding of the afterlife, yet they clearly believed that there was an afterlife. Hinduism believes in the rebirth and reincarnation of souls, that the souls are immortal and imperishable. Muslims believe in the continued existence of the soul and a transformed physical existence after death. And according to Buddhism, after death, one is either reborn into another body, reincarnated, or enters nirvana. Now, there are widely differing views about what life eternal is like, and there are widely differing views as to how one attains eternal life. But there is sweeping acclamation that there is life beyond this world. There is sweeping acclamation that death is not the end. And why is that? Well, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says, God has set eternity in their heart. You know, this is something that animals don't possess. A, a moth doesn't flit around thinking, what's it going to be like after I die? A cow doesn't lumber around thinking, what's it going to be like after I die? You as a human being are made uniquely in God's image. And God has a perfect grasp on eternity. He is eternal. Was, is, and is to come. But being made in his image, we may not have a, a perfect understanding of it. We certainly don't. But we have a strong sense of the eternal. God's put it on our hearts. If any of you 
do not believe in God, or if any of you are running from God, one of the things God uses to get your attention is the sense of eternal. Were it not for sin, Adam and Eve and their offspring would have lived forever. They were made to live forever. And yet because of sin, generation after generation after generation after generation has died. And you would think that existential experience, generation after generation, would say, well, there's no life after death. Everybody dies. And yet here we are in 2016, and you and I have a sense that death is not the end. And yet, while we have that sense that death is not the end, we recognize that this life on earth is so brief, right? Do you remember haiku? When you were in elementary school, your teacher taught you haiku. It's that Japanese form of poetry that's three lines long and a total of 17 syllables. Uh, my daughter Anne sent me a haiku that she ran across, and it reads this way. The only problem with haiku is that you just get started and then. <laughs> Isn't that great? Friends, you know, the only problem with life is that you just get started. And then we have a sense of the eternal, and yet our lives here are so brief. But something wells up within us to say, this life is not all there is. And why is it? Because God has set eternity in our hearts. The second application is this. Just as Jacob looked to the more permanent homeland promised to him, so should we. Just as Jacob looked to the more permanent homeland promised to him, so should we. Jacob did not forget God's promise to him and to his family, but he trusted that God would follow through on his promise and make him into a great nation that would inherit the land of Canaan. And in the New Testament... In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, the author, led by the Spirit of God, reflects on the lives of those Old Testament saints who, though they were sojourners, trusted in God's promise. And listen to what the Scripture says regarding God's opinion of those who trusted Him even while they were sojourning. Hebrews eleven thirteen and following. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God, listen to this, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. Folks, we witnessed something beautiful up here about 20 minutes ago. Jack Young may have a deep affection for his home country of China. And I hope he has a deep affection for the United States. But he has publicly declared up here that his deepest affection is for the heavenly Canaan, to be with the Lord, that that is his home country. We had a wonderful man in our church in Starkville, Mississippi, Grace Presbyterian, Ed Prysock. His wife, Edna Joy Prysock, attended a service here in 2012. She was part of the pulpit committee that came to hear me preach that summer morning in 2012. Maybe some of you met her. But 
But Ed had been feeling poorly for a while, and when they finally diagnosed his cancer, there was not much time left. And so he went to the hospital at Vanderbilt. And when the physician came in to see him, the physician said to him, I'm sorry about your bum deal. And Ed said, there are no bum deals with the Lord. An elder in our church, a judge, taught the children catechism. And he just knew that all things would work for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And I appreciate the physician being sympathetic, recognizing the trial of this life, but I am moved by Ed's words that there are no bum deals with the Lord. In fact, a few days before he died, he told his wife, Ed DeJoy, he said, I, and, and Ed is not one of these, uh, uh, what would you say, kind of, um, what's the word, I don't know, kind of, bah, 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 bah. I mean, he was a, very much a straight shooter, and he, but he told Ed DeJoy, he said, he said, I feel the presence of the Lord more than I ever have. And then DeJoy said, do you see Jesus? And Ed said, no. (laughs) But like Ed and like Jacob, we must look forward to the permanent home promised us. Jesus said in John chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus, having lived a perfect life, Jesus, having died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, then rose from the dead, bodily from the grave, and ascended into heaven, where, among other things, he is preparing a place for us. And meanwhile, gives us the Holy Spirit, we who believe, as a deposit, guaranteeing that we also shall be raised. And we recognize, by God's Word and by the Spirit working in us, that we, like Abraham, are aliens and strangers in this land. As nice as this land is, we are sojourners. And it is our pleasure, even when we are at the point of death, to fix our thoughts upon heavenly Canaan, where our souls go to the assembly of souls of the faithful, where we will be delivered from the burdens of sin. Jacob was gathered to his people. And dear friends, if God's people be our people, death will deliver us unto them also. The third and final application is this. Let us point our covenant children towards that permanent home with Christ. You may not have children, but you are in a church where there are children, and they are the covenant children of this church, and let us point them towards the permanent home with Christ. You know, what parents and their friends value is contagious to children. We live in Starkville, Mississippi, as I said, the home of Mississippi State. Hail State! And 
Children growing up in Starkville cherish the color maroon. They wear maroon on Fridays and other days of the week. They can sing the Hail State song, and they will uphold in the same category as the violin, the venerable instrument of the cowbell. It is contagious. What, do the, what would the covenant children of this church say you and I deeply value? Jacob's heart was very much upon Canaan, fueled by the promise of God, fueled by the promise of God that Canaan should be the inheritance of his seed. And so his final two acts before he dies are to, one, pronounce blessing on the sons and what their, uh, sort of an outline of what their futures will be, their posterity in the land of Canaan, that's just before our text today, and then to charge them to bury him there. He wants them to remember Canaan. He wants them to have an expectation of what God's going to do. He wants them to walk, to traverse that land, and to remember it. And you know what? However well they remembered it, I'm not sure, but 400 years later, the posterity of Jacob marched out of Egypt in great number and went to Canaan. If Jesus doesn't come first, wouldn't it be something if 400 years from now our posterity deeply longed for the heavenly Canaan and that God would satisfy that longing? There was a wonderful pastor up in the Philadelphia area by the name of Jack Miller. He wrote a book, Come Home, Barbara, some of you may have heard of. But I heard him say one time, he said, you know, people say that man's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. But Jack said, you know, the few people I've known who were truly heavenly minded, they did a world of good. And dear friends, as you are heavenly minded, and may the Lord make it so, it will do a world of good in the life of the generation behind us. In conclusion, let me come back to my question. What might your final and dying wish be? Jacob's was the promised land for himself and for his children. You know, it would be fitting, not only at our last hour, but in this hour and in the next hour, that we long for the heavenly Canaan for us and for our children and for all that the Lord our God will call. You know, maybe that picture of the family of Jacob accompanied by the Egyptians going to the promised land. Of course, the Egyptians were Gentiles, right? Maybe, maybe that's a foreshadowing, a picture of Jews and Gentiles alike, whether it be Chinese or Irish or Sudanese, going to the heavenly promised land through Jesus Christ. After Jesus said, I will take you to be where I am, he said, you know the way to the place I am going. And Thomas asked him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jacob, after he died, was incapable of transporting himself to Canaan. And such it is with 
with us. After death, we are incapable of transporting ourselves to the heavenly kingdom. We need the power of someone outside ourselves to carry us there. And Jesus Christ is the one with that power. Jesus Christ is the one with that heart. Jesus Christ is the one with that promise. And Jesus Christ is the one with that mercy. Dear friends, if you, if you know Christ, and I'm convinced that most of you do, then reaffirm that commitment to Christ, looking to him. But if any of you have not reached that point yet, I would ask you to think about the fact you have eternity in your heart. You have something that from within says death is not the end. You need someone to transport you. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ who produces rooms in his heavenly Father's house in which we will live with him forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the many blessings we have in this temporal life here. How many of them are represented in this room? Family, friends, clothes. We have freedoms, Father. You've given us a measure of health. We thank you for all these things, dear Father. But moreover, Father, we thank you that you have taken care of our most serious problem, and that is our sin, at great cost to your Son that it was your will to crush him and to cause him to suffer, but he saw the light of life again. And he makes intercession for us. Father, we love him. We love you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Father, may our desires for the heavenly Canaan trump all other desires. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, would you please stand for the benediction and then remain standing for the doxology that will immediately follow and the words for the doxology are found in your order of worship. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.